Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host Eagle One from Eagle Speak. We appreciate everybody joining us today for another edition of Midrats. And as we are live, I would like to do my usual altar call if you're with us. You can go ahead and scroll down to the bottom of the show page. That's where you will find a link to the chat room. And if you have some observations you'd like to make during the course of the show or some questions you would like for us to direct our guest, that's a great place to to put them there, and we will try to fold that into the conversation as we go forward. And if you've got to run off and take care of some other business before the show is done and you want to see what you missed, if you don't already, go ahead and go over to iTunes, Spreaker, whatever podcast aggregator you use, and subscribe to the free podcast. That way, MidRats will be there waiting for you at your convenience. But hey, let's uh, go ahead and dive into today's show. Uh, I, I, when, our, when our guest agreed to come on, I, I, was, I was really excited because I was looking forward to, to, to talking to her because uh, it's going to bring us a different perspective than a lot of our, our previous guests do, simply because she's not a U.S. national. But the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy, it shares a common heritage. And especially when you look at the, the last century, we've built together with some of our other closer allies in, in North America. Hello, Canada. How are you? Uh, we have built uh, a really great maritime security partnership on a longer period of time than I think um, any other comparably located and competitive nations have ever had. In more recent years, we've also shared for the navalist, whether you're British or American, uh, some common challenges in keeping what was once our unchallenged combined sea power uh, relevant, capable, and funded. And when you look at the recent lessons that that whether they're in uniform or not, the success in thinking about what the, the Navy needed to be and finding the right advocates and money. There's a lot of lessons, I think, going from west to east, at east to west, that we could both do, and as uh, our predecessors have done for a century. And our guest today, again, I'm really happy to have her on board. It's going to be a great conversation on, on this and related topics. That is Emma Salisbury. Emma is a Ph.D. candidate at Burkett College, University of London, researching the history and theory of the U.S. military-industrial complex. Emma, welcome to Midrats. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm just glad that we, we have you for a full hour, so we can, we can pick your noggin for all sorts of good ideas. And for those who have made the horrible mistake of not following you on Twitter, they may not be aware that uh, you're actually on our side of the Atlantic. You uh, you have picked the worst time of the year to come to Washington, D.C., so your next visit has got to be better walking weather. But um, you know, tell our listeners for a bit what's got you over here 
And uh, what will you be doing while you're here? Yes, I've absolutely picked the worst week ever to be in D.C. It is horrible, but the city is wonderful. So it is worth it, even though I've got very, very warm walking around all of the beautiful sites so far. Um, so I'm over in D.C. Um, to do a bit of research uh, for my Ph.D. So I was going to do a lot of interviews and archival research originally for my dissertation. Uh, but then COVID happened and your State Department said I wasn't allowed in the country because uh, I might bring terrible disease with me. Um, so I've only just been allowed in. So I am having a good week of lots of meetings at the Pentagon, at Congress, and with some guys in the industry as well, just to try and get some perspectives uh, to inform where I'm going with my research. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about one of your... Uh... Uh, focuses of your uh, PhD studies and the writings I've seen that you do. Uh, let's talk about the military-industrial complex and the effect that that has on on, on U.S. and perhaps even uh, Great Britain's naval policies. Can you kind of describe what you perceive to be the military-industrial complex? Sure. So <clears throat> I think it's one of those things that everybody knows what it is if you say it but nobody has ever really defined it. So part of what I'm trying to do with my research is to actually map it out and have all the different parts, how they relate together, where the money goes and where the power goes, because it isn't just money, it is also influence. So each of the parts um, works together, but then also try and influence each other. And it's that kind of web of connections that is the military-industrial complex. So the nodes that I have are predominantly the military, uh, so the services and the DOD, and then government, so that's the White House um, and the executive branch and also Congress, and then also industry. So that's the big kind of traditional industry that we think of when you think of defense industry, like Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, et cetera, which I call the prime contractors, but also lots of smaller entrants into industry. Um, especially as we come into using new types of technology. There's lots of new companies that are coming onto the scene, bringing those kinds of technologies that the military are going to start folding in to um, military capabilities going forward. So that's kind of the main interplay. Um, with naval policy, um, it's very similar. So you have the interplay between the Department of the Navy, um, the Navy itself, and then the Congressional Oversight and then the big shipbuilders. Um, so those are kind of the three big nodes for the Navy. And it's really the interplay between those three that shaped naval policy. So although we might think externally that naval policy is made by the executive branch and by the military, that isn't actually always truly the case, given the influence of money and of power and from bringing industry into that web. So it's important to make sure that we understand that because coming at naval policy from a very cerebral, strategic level is not going to mean that you fully understand where the Navy's going, where it thinks it should be going, and how it's going to get there. You know, speaking of, of national power and the, the, the primes, and I guess it really, I mean, it's been true the, between Great Britain and uh, the United States and our military cooperation and our military industries working together. 
But it really started to kick off after, um, you know, then-Secretary of Defense Bill Perry and his Last Supper that led to the great consolidation in the defense industry where everybody bought everybody out and consolidated. But it wasn't just inside the lifelines of the U.S. There was a lot of uh, business connections. You know, British BAE is a perfect example. And we uh, – Americans flying Harriers and now the, the, the British flying F-35s or C-130s, tons of examples. But you know, that power and that influence is it, no longer within uh, a nation's lifelines. It's, it's international. Uh, does that complicate a lot of those uh, deals and programs and the moving around of power is the fact that these aren't national corporations. These are really transnational. Absolutely. I mean, even with um, specifically international programs like the Joint Strike Fighter, where you've got um, different countries all coming together to do something, that's one thing. But even a program that is specifically American or specifically British, you will have companies that are either owned or partially owned by um, businesses from elsewhere. So those connections really do make a huge difference when it comes to looking at the defense industrial base. It's not something you can limit to just one country anymore. And you maybe could have done, you know, sort of after the Second World War, coming into the early Cold War, middle Cold War, that kind of area, things were very much limited to that particular country. But nowadays you can't really speak about the American defense industrial base in such a limited way. And I think also as we are bringing in new technologies like AI, machine learning, robotics, uncrewed things, software. All of those things are done by companies that are not from the traditional industrial base in, in a lot of cases. And those companies do tend to be from a more globalized market. They're developing these technologies on the civilian market a lot of the time, and they're doing so on the global free market. So they are even more detracted from a traditional defense industrial base because they are very much not limited to one country. Although a lot of those companies are American or are based in America, their operations are global, um, particularly in Europe and in our partners in Asia. So I think the face of the defense industrial base has very much changed, um, especially since the, the Last Supper. And it has become something where you have to be able to look at the networks between countries as well as within. One of, one of the concerns I got from reading your articles is that we don't seem to have a very, the Navy doesn't seem to have a very effective job of uh, communicating what its needs and desires are. And, you know, some of that is because I gather in your view that there's so many internal politics in the Navy and between the other of the Department of Defense that that is an issue. Am, am I uh, understanding uh, what you've written correctly? Yes, definitely. I think it's one of those things where if you have lots of big voices, they will often have different opinions. And what should be done is that everybody sits down, makes a plan, however long that takes, of course, um, but then they can all decide what they're going to do, where they're going to go, how they're going to get there, and make it happen. That's kind of the ideal. And, um, of course, that doesn't happen um, in most cases, but I think the Navy in particular has a problem with that. I mean, for the last 30 years, 
we haven't seen a proper shipbuilding plan. Um, and especially recently, I know there was some reporting in Politico um, yesterday or this morning about um, problems between the DOD, the Navy and the Marine Corps about the future shipbuilding plan. And you know, someone's just got to sit down, bang some heads together and just make a decision because staffing around for this long is not a good look, both with partners and allies, but also to your adversaries. I mean, this is the kind of thing that people in China and Russia will be looking at and thinking, fantastic, they don't know what they're doing. It's funny, the phrase, you know, bashing some heads together. A few conversations I've had recently, and it's a problem that's always um, been appreciated, but it's become acute, is not so much a desire to bang some heads together, but not knowing which heads to grab to bang. It's, uh, it, it's almost as if the executive branch, at least on the U.S. side of the House, uh, when it comes to naval matters, would prefer not to. The uniformed leadership uh, prefers to wait for the executive branch leadership to step forward, unlike you know Tom Connolly back in the 1970s, Vice Admiral, one issue, um, who's always been one of my heroes because he gave up a star to, to speak the right things about the uh, F-111 Bravo. But uh, that seems to be a lot of the problem is there's a large desire, especially in Congress and one branch of our government, to to get along on that. But they they just don't know which heads they need to bash together in order to move forward. You know, that's our dysfunction uh, inside the 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 British parliamentary system. Do you all have a, a similar problem of a, uh, a, a diffuse series of um large-scale stakeholders on the political side that if they're they're not aligned properly then you get this this paralysis of uh, inaction uh, so we tend to have um, a slightly different experience with it uh, because we do everything in quite a centralized way now through the integrated review and um, so that's written um, in partnership with the Ministry of Defense and the Foreign Office uh, and number 10 so it's kind of the big three departments that have a voice will work together to write our defence and foreign policy strategy um, for the next period. So we tend to do those um, every, I think it's four years. Um, so it's a bit more of a long-term plan, but also contains quite a lot of detail uh, in the defence parts of it about where we're going with our procurement. Um, the good thing about that is that it does incentivise the different parts of the national security web to sit together and try and figure it out. It is a little bit of a problem because it is only done every few years. So if something happens like Ukraine, you do have to act pretty quickly and try and have some flexibility within that plan to be able to respond to big crises like that. But I think it's actually worked pretty well in terms of, of our long-term planning. Um, it's something that I, I don't know whether that's something that the U.S. would consider doing or whether things would just be superseded by events. Well, you know, long-term planning is, and I think you point out in your most recent, more recent article in uh, War on the Rocks, uh, you know, that we're trying to plan for 50 years in the future. And, and you know, there's a tendency when you do that to kind of try and find a middle path 
to, you know, don't go too far one way or the other. Nobody wants to be the battleship admiral the day after Pearl Harbor. Um, you know, is is there a way around that type of thinking? I mean, you, you you said to challenge the assumptions that they that the planners have held in the past. Is 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 there a way to to move past uh, concern? You know, to, to try to avoid that middle road and, and yet be ready for what you think may happen fifty years from now. I think the key thing has got to be flexibility. I mean. It, we're in I mean it's always unprecedented times every couple of months now, but we're in a we're in a space where there's you know, you're you're in an adversarial relationship with Russia, you're in an adversarial relationship with China. You've got to project power for two theaters at once. If either of those devolve into an actual shooting war with either of those powers that will get even worse. But that's not something that you can plan for in detail because you just don't know how it's going to happen and it's the same problem that anyone faces in defense planning and has for the last hundred years it's just what's going to happen we don't know so we have to be ready for anything so flexibility is the thing that has to to become key but that's quite difficult with naval planning because you have these huge platforms with long lead times and a huge amount of money involved and if you've accidentally built too many destroyers you can't really do anything about that. So it's important to have a good spread. But then having a good spread means you have to have a bigger fleet size and you have to have more money. So it becomes a very expensive thing to do. Um, I think that's why the literal combat ship was was held up as such a, a magical thing that would fix things because it was supposed to be flexible in its mission. So if you can have one platform that can do anti-submarine warfare, can do minesweeping, can do C4ISR, like that becomes such a wonderful thing because it adds that flexibility to your strategy through one platform. So that's something that, that kind of modularity in platforms, I think will become, you know, it's becoming more of a trend now because it brings you that flexibility without having to have four or five platforms at once. So it's something that I think will continue and especially continue into the, the uncrewed vessels that we're seeing coming through. But it is something also that can hide a lot of sins. You can promise everything as they did with the with the LCS. And it sounds amazing, it sounds like it will fix all of your problems. But if it doesn't work, then what have you got? I think that was one of the things about LCS that was so infuriating is it it did in many ways, and rightfully so, really put um, under a shadow the idea of modularity. Uh, I've always thought that the the Danes and their Absalon class uh, did it right, and it's been a successful platform. Uh, but for whatever reason, and I have a, a few suspicions, mostly involving bureaucracy and culture. Uh, we just made a dog's breakfast of the entire LCS program. But there is something to be said, and I think you rightfully said so, especially for um, not just big nations or medium-sized nations, but smaller nations that, that might need flexibility to be able to do more with one platform than they would otherwise for something that was very focused. Um, you know, I mentioned the... Um, the Absalon class, 
But when you look at that idea of modularity or, or multi-mission, uh, if you want to look at you know a, a, a long-dwell capability there, do you see some navies out there that uh, on the western side of the house that, that, like the Danes, seem to be from either a problematic or intellectual point of view, uh, getting it right or at least getting it better? I think I think it's something that is very very important for European navies in particular because a lot of our threats are coming from Russia and our naval forces are absolutely imperative to being able to deter and to uh, defend the nation should it come to that. So I think it's something that a lot of European navies have been looking at and we have all been looking at the US example. A lot of the problems with the LCS are not in the the concept. They're not a problem with modularity per se, but they're a problem with how it was executed and the speed at which it was done. Um, if you know things in the LCS had been tested better, um, perhaps with some land-based testing before they were actually deployed, we probably could have caught a lot of the problems that, that ended up plaguing it with things like propulsion. So I think we are learning from you guys. Um, it's never fun to learn from your friends' mistakes, but it's always wise. So um, I'm hoping that we will be able to do it better. Um, and then hopefully you'll be able to learn a bit from us as to how we did it better as well. Well, one of the underlying things uh, with the LCS and a lot of the other new ships, the uh, DDG-1000 series, um, is the innovation. And, and Americans are famous for trying to innovate their way out of problems. Uh, but yeah, I think you just hit on something key. I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about why it's so important to, if you're going to innovate, to make sure that what you've innovated actually works when you put it in place. Yeah, I think the problem with innovation is, I mean, innovation is important. That is how we solve problems. It's how we come up with new things. But I think there is an over-reliance on the concept of innovation to fix problems. You know, having innovation written in your strategy document or your, um, your bid for a program or anything like that will make things look fun and sexy and great. And innovation will solve every single thing that is currently a problem. But that's not necessarily the case. Innovation does not always equal progress and change does not always equal progress. And I think sometimes there's a, a mistaken reliance on movement, momentum. We're going somewhere, we're doing something, something is happening. But the fact that something is happening does not mean the correct thing is happening. And it does not mean that the thing will actually work once it has happened. And I think also part of the problem is that we don't value the role of failure in, in innovation, particularly in the military, it is very difficult to admit that something has failed, which means it's very difficult to learn from where those failures have come from. If you're able to say early on, like, hey, guys, this didn't work. It didn't do what we thought it would. We've learned this, this, and this. We're going to try something else. That means that you are able to learn those lessons and move on to something else quickly. But if you can't admit that you failed, that means a lot of programs will go on for a few more years after the, 
good endpoints to the past, spending more money, wasting more time, and it's an opportunity cost for other innovative programs that could actually get you where you want to go. And this is where the civilian innovation ecosystem does things well. It fails fast. You can try 10 different ideas. You can put seed money into all of those and then pick the two or three that have done the best and take those forward. And I think that is a, a concept that the military really does need to grapple with and stop fetishizing innovation, but allow the innovation process to go through iterations to fail and then to find something that works at the end of it. One thing we, um, we touched, just mentioned for a second, Ukraine, I, I guess it is kind of the the 100-pound head in the room. But with all this consolidation we saw on the defense industry and we the ongoing battle between efficiency and effectiveness, at least on the point end, um, is a fun conversation to have because uh, the nothing's more entertaining than a warfighter versus an accountant. But one thing that has really broken above the background noise, and I know with our our friend uh, John in, in, the, in the chat room, from John Conrad from G-Captain, he'll appreciate this question, is the fragility between COVID-19 and Ukraine, the fragility of supply chains. Uh, and especially coming from the UK, a Highland nation that can't feed itself. Uh, you know, one of my, my favorite quotes about my own home country is uh, uh, Bismarck said that, God has special providence for fools, drunkards in the United States. You know, we, we have a relative abundance of whatever we want here, whether it's food, oil, timber, whatever. But uh, the Royal Navy existed in many cases just to be able to stop the nation from starving to death. But also being able to fight a war now, you can't generate everything you need locally, whether it's rare earth elements, whether it's oil. Uh, for our Germans, it's, it's, it's gas. Um, where do you see these these multinationals, these large corporations, uh, these these finely tuned profit and loss uh, statements that cause them to outsource a lot of the materials they need to be able to support the defense infrastructure? That works well in peace. Is the system starting to appreciate the fragility that we've built on our ability to do something as basic as getting microchips for our seeker heads, for our precision-guided weapons, which enable us not to lose people by the thousands per day. Absolutely. I think it's definitely something that, that businesses are having to grapple with now. I mean, because the problem with supply chains is, as you say, they are global. And if something happens somewhere in the world, that can very easily undermine your supply chain. And because everything is so interconnected, even one small breaking the chain 10,000 miles away can have a huge knock-on impact down the line. So given that supply chains now are embedded in the concept of money, so it's the capitalist urge to reduce your input costs so you can make more profit, that is the, the fundamental force behind outsourcing. You can get things made cheaper in India or Africa or wherever. But if you can't get those products or those components to where they need to be, that doesn't work anymore. So there, there will still be that drive to make things cheaper, but I think it will also be coupled with the drive to keep things moving. 
So companies will have to assess where they source products from, not only in terms of the cost, but also the safety of the chain of getting them from point A to point B. This may well lead to a consolidation of supply chains in in Western countries. Um, I hope the US won't go down a isolationist, protectionist route completely, um, but I think there will be a lot more production um, that is moved back to the continental US. Um, I think that will also happen in Europe, um, but I hope that we'll be able to at least keep things um, within a wider set of countries where the supply chain can be guaranteed rather than just going back to, you know, autarkic um, countries doing their own thing, because that is just not possible anymore. As you say, um, we would not be able to be self-sufficient. Um, a lot of the smaller countries in Europe wouldn't be able to be either. The US would probably have the best chance, but I don't think it would work economically, and I don't think you'd want it to either. But if you look at things like um, semiconductors, for example, um, the biggest uh, semiconductor plants are all in Taiwan. And if Taiwan is increasingly threatened by China, if it's harder to get materials into Taiwan to make semiconductors, if it's harder to then get the finished products out of Taiwan, that is going to hugely, hugely affect the U.S. military, given the prevalence of semiconductor chips in huge numbers of platforms now. Um, and you see that the U.S. has recognized that problem and is starting to bump up production in the continental U.S. to be able to stop any kind of uh, interdiction by China from disrupting that supply chain. So I think it's something that will be far more heavily considered going forward. And I think that is the right thing to do, because although cost is important, if you can't actually get your product to its end user, there's no point. Yeah, and that, that is another part of the military-industrial complex that we probably ought to discuss is it's not just the chips, but the ships. Uh, the U.S. Has, has merchant marine has declined substantially, and we closed a bunch of shipyards, both commercial and uh, uh, government-owned. Uh, part, part of the sales job that I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the Navy needs to make is, you know, we, we need more shipyards, and that's a good thing, and we can put them other places than, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be Brooklyn anymore, but it could be, uh, you know, somewhere on the banks of the uh, of a Great Lakes uh, city. Uh, is does does uh, the UK face a similar issue with the, with a lack of a merchant fleet, or are they content with what they've gotten? Is is this uh, problem where we don't have enough, maybe enough hulls and shipbuilding capacity to add the, the the naval forces we need, let alone the merchant forces. Is that is that one of those things that the Navy needs to communicate more effectively uh, when talking to their congressmen about uh, about the money needed to fund our national defense? Definitely. I mean, the I don't I don't get the feeling that Congress appreciates the link between the merchant marine and, and the Navy and to have more capacity of shipbuilding, I think often is thought to mean military shipbuilding, pure and simple, and not to actually link that to building ships for even the Coast Guard, but also the, the merchant marine. So I think it's very important to make the argument that shipbuilding capacity does not just benefit the military, but also benefits business, it benefits the economy, and it benefits the security of supply chains. 
um, in the UK, I mean, a lot of our trade comes through the Channel Tunnel from um, from the European continent. Um, so a lot of our supply chains come through that way. And we're also very lucky to be so close to the great ports of Europe like Rotterdam. So we do have an excellent maritime trade as well. So I don't think it's as much of a problem for us. But given that the US is geographically isolated from your markets in Europe and your markets in Asia, like you're going to need the merchant marine to be able to keep those things going. I'd always found that, you know, that that point you, you made right there is it's one thing that we've talked about here over the years, just just trying to get our trying to get our hands around it. It's why is it so hard? It's not like and I'm sure, you know, in a few days in D C you've seen sometimes I derisively refer to the uh, Potomac flotilla or the Army of Northern Virginia. There's a lot of military in the National Capital Region. There's a lot of military people up on the hill working in various places in the government, some not even wearing a military uniform, uh, those that are working up at the hill. There's a lot of cross-pollinization. I think more than in the U.K., we have a lot of former military serving in Congress, a lot of people in Congress are also in the reserves. It's a pretty high percentage, even though historically it's low, but we've always been a little militaristic in that regard. But you have, whether you want to call it sea blindness or a lack of understanding or really a lack of appreciation of the importance of not just the sub the subprimes or the major contractors in your district and you know, Virginia or Maine or Mississippi, Louisiana, uh, California. Uh, but it's the importance of this system we've created in the last century where goods can flow relatively well across the oceans in a cost-effective manner. That is a gift hard-earned, but it's not an entitlement and it's not a force of nature. It's a creation of generations of people, mostly um, from North America and the UK, that have enabled that. Why, why is this not really appreciated enough? Is there something that could be done that you think might help the situation of appreciation or at least acknowledgement so that resources and focus can be where it really should be? I think it's got to be about education because congressional representatives and senators, they have so many demands on their time. They have so many things they have to think about. Their schedules are insane. And they do not have the time or the capacity, most of them, to do wider reading or to talk to wider sections of people if, they, if the opportunities are not put in front of them. Um, obviously, this is slightly different for the members of the Armed Services Committee because that's their speciality, that's what they love, that's what they do. And if you do have a big shipyard in your district, then you're more likely to be connected. But it's important to spread that knowledge across the whole of Congress, not just the ones that are in that sphere already. Given the, the demands on, on congressional representatives' time, I'm not sure how to achieve that because you could make the same argument for agriculture or education or healthcare or any of the other massive issues that the congressional representatives face on a daily basis. And it's difficult to 
make the the naval issue speak louder than those other issues. So I think it's got to be about opportunity and having more opportunities within Congress in an easy way for members to be able to come, ask questions, be briefed, and increase the transparency of what's happening in the military. Because it can be quite daunting to look at from the outside if you haven't served, if you haven't got a family member who's served, if you're not familiar with the defence industry, it's something that can be very, very difficult to understand. And so difficult to understand, it might be putting them off even trying. So if there was a way to educate them in a way that would speak to them and to their issues, but also put forward the Navy's perspective, I think that would be very valuable. I know that's something that um, some representatives have been calling for, like Mike Gallagher and, and Rob Whitman have asked the Navy to do more of that, perhaps with some more gaming, um, which I think would be very valuable. But it depends on the willingness of the congressional representative to listen, because if they don't turn up to the meeting, then there's no point having the meeting. One of the problems we face with, uh, and I think you just handled it, addressed it slightly, one of the problems we have in the U.S. is we roll people out of their jobs really fairly quickly. So unlike, say, the Russian Navy back in the Gorshov day, or yeah, Gorshov, was that right? Anyway, uh, he was there a long time. He, he was able to build the Russian Navy because he was there. Uh, we had long-term congressmen in the past like uh, Carl Vinson, who were great Navy advocates, before World War II. It's such great advocates that we actually named an aircraft carrier after him. Um, but now we, you know, the, the, uh, the chief of naval operations, the, the military people in, uh, who are the face of the Navy in, uh, to Congress rather than the, the uh, administrative staff, some of whom rotate out fairly frequently because they're also political appointees. Uh, we don't have anybody who's, who's there all the time saying, we need this, we need this, we need this. Uh, and and I, I gather from what you're saying, you, you have those type of people in the, in the, in the UK. Uh, it would, would it help us if we had uh, fairly senior executive service uh, administrative types who really believed in the core mission of the Navy and weren't rotated out every four, four to eight years? I think that would help enormously. It's one of actually one of the things I, about your system that I think is the weirdest is your political appointees because you so many of the positions in every department switch out every four years and if they're senate confirmed positions you have to wait for the senate to confirm them before they can start work so you have not only are people switching out every four years potentially but there's also that weird period once as the presidential administration has changed where those positions are not filled. And now we've seen with the Biden administration, there are some positions that are still not the election. So that just hampers all of the work that those departments could be doing, uh, both to fit with the, the political um, ambitions of that administration, but also um, to look at what the military wants from that administration. I mean, in the UK, our... Um, political appointees, as it were, are literally just the ministers. So in the MOD, there are maybe five ministers plus their political advisors that will be switched out. But everyone else stays in the MOD. They know what they're doing. They've been in their job for a long time. They are not political. So their goals are to make the department work 
them to work with the military, and that is what they are there for. They are not they're there to enact what the ministers ask them to do, but they are not bound to the fate of those things. So we have a much deeper store of experience and of practical working that stays within the department for longer. And I think that's something that, that you guys are missing over here. And it's something that, I mean, I don't know whether there's any scope to be able to fix that, but I think it really does affect both long-term planning and, and short-term implementation. That's a great lead-in to a question I wanted to ask you, because uh, perspective is important, and kind of like I mentioned in the intro, uh, that back in 2010, when I, I started doing the terrible 20s, it was all based upon what I had read about the challenges that they were having over in the United Kingdom uh, concerning the budget and being able to get enough uh, warships to meet what they wanted, but you had domestic concerns, you had economic concerns that uh, just was uh, a wall that politically just you could not push through. And looking at what was going to happen in this decade, I said, you know, we need to look at the challenges and how intellectually uh, they're being addressed in the United Kingdom because they're about five to ten years ahead of us. And structurally, we're going to have similar problems here in the U.S. And we are in many ways, especially now that we've come off the special considerations of our our two little wars in, in Central Asia. And that was – and I'm not the only person who, who does this, obviously. So that's West looking East. And you're predominantly, especially with your studies, uh, looking at the U.S. military-industrial complex – uh, that, of course, is tied in with politics and everything else. You're looking from east to west across the Atlantic. What are some of the other bold-faced items that, that really stand out for you from your perspective that perhaps you don't see acknowledged, appreciated, or seen for those that are very U.S.-centric in how they look at things? I think the biggest thing that surprised me was the amount of money involved in politics and in lobbying. I mean, the sheer volume of political donations that a defense company can give to somebody running for office in a district where they have a factory, for example, is vast and huge. And it's just the data is available because I use it in my dissertation. It's not something that people seem to be aware of or to really care about. And I know the issue of money in politics in the U.S. is <laughs> ridiculously huge and is a massive problem in every industry. But the defense industry does do that. And it is something that creates these webs of influence that we just don't have in the U.K. Politicians in the U.K., we don't get that much money from anybody, let alone from private companies. And the amount of influence that is created by those monetary links can distort how your military industrial complex works in a way that I think is most prevalent in the US given just the sheer amounts involved. And this is something that is going to take a long time to fix and it is not going to come from concern about defence lobbying. It's going to come from concern about lobbying in lots of other areas that I won't touch on. But I think that does need to be looked at. It's something that I found very worrying and very surprising when I started looking into it. 
And I think it's something that the UK has managed to avoid in a way that means that we don't have those distortions. Mark, you there? I am there. The ONF switch got me again. Um, <laughs> one of the things we did in this country back in 1946, we reorganized uh, our Congress a little bit, legislator, legislature, and we took away two committees that were vital. Uh, one was the Committee on Military Affairs, which dealt with, in those days, the U.S. Army and, and the Army Air Corps before it became the Air Force. And the other was a Committee on Naval Affairs, in which the Congressman uh, Vincent was one of the primary uh, leaders. And we combined them all into the uh, uh, Armed, Force, Armed Services Committee, uh, which may have subcommittees. I'm, I'm not up to speed on that, but it was. It, it seems to me that if the Navy really could use the kind of supervision and oversight and help that a a House committee on naval uh, affairs uh, provided up to up to 1946. Uh, and I'm, I'm always fascinated by the fact that we decided to combine them, which means that every time anybody gets called up in front of the Armed Services Committee, it, it's like you're, you're addressing the issues of the Marine Corps, the Army, the, the, the Coast Guard, the, the uh, Air Force, and it, it, I, I think we've lost something by, by doing away with that. And I, there's been a movement, some people have been discussing uh, some kind of oversight committee for the Navy again. Uh, do you think that such an entity, which we used to have prior to 1946, would be useful to us in these modern times? I do, yeah. I mean, both of the, both Hask and Sask do have subcommittees that look at sea power, but these that's one of, I think it, each of them has eight subcommittees in various iterations who look at various different things, and it's all quite confused. And I think it's difficult to have that kind of holistic look at where the Navy's going without some kind of, of special committee. I think a commission on planning the Navy for the next 30, 40, 50 years would be very valuable. I think it would be important to get all of those decision makers in the same room, get them all to give their ideas, give their priorities, give their proposals, and just kind of hammer something out because something is not working if the navy doesn't have a plan and hasn't had a good one for the last couple of decades and there's clearly something that needs to be done differently and i don't see how a, a new committee could make things worse so you might as well give it a try yeah doing the same thing over and over again and expecting things to get better is <laughs> usually not a very good plan exactly. it's a punchline for a joke that we never cease to enjoy making i think uh the just want to open the aperture a little bit before the, the hour gets done here. Uh, I think uh, kind of like what I opened, I'm a, I'm a little bit of an Anglosphere fanboy. Uh, I, I really think uh, geography and culture and history, um, except for a couple of uh, unpleasant moments at the be beginning of our relationship, that when you look, and it would be great if Canada would spend at least as much as the UK does on their defense, but when you look at Canada – U.S., Great Britain, 
We have our, our little friends up in Iceland with their volcanoes and a little spot of uh, Denmark in between. We've got uh, a really nice thing going in the North Atlantic from a, a security point of view, which, which is helpful. And uh, after Brexit, a little twist went on there because as uh, at least from, from my distance, one of the fun things uh, that the United Kingdom has done throughout its history has been a nice balancing act on the, on the continent. And with, uh, with the UK out of the EU, now we're back to the French and the Germans positioning. And looking from across the channel, especially the French, uh, when you look at some of the changes that they're trying to do or at least uh, bring attention to the already pre-existing military structures in the EU, how does that look from across the channel, especially when it comes to NATO and the, the longstanding assumptions that people have about the alliance? The problem with the European Union defense-wise was that it was having any kind of defense body within the European Union itself was always something that Britain was a bit uncomfortable with. So even before Brexit, even before the referendum, that wasn't something we were keen on because we thought it would duplicate what we were doing with NATO. And it might also mean that countries would focus more on the EU side and neglect the NATO side and, and that might cause problems. So I actually think the EU does not need to have a big defence role because NATO is there. Of course, NATO means that we are reliant on the US and a lot of countries are more reliant than others given that they don't spend their 2% of GDP targets. And given that Britain has always done that, it's something that we agree with you guys that, that other countries in the alliance should be pulling their weight. But I think it's important for... Europe to pull its weight within NATO rather than create a whole new thing within the European Union. I don't think that's necessary. The European Union is a political union and an economic union. I don't think it also needs to be a defence alliance. And I think NATO can do that much better and will do it better if that is the focus rather than trying to do two things at once on continental Europe. Uh, we were talking about the uh, the committee, the military, the, the uh, naval affairs committee, and one of the concerns people have had with us again. I'm going to go back to the same kind of issue: is that we don't we have so many different uh, entities that have uh, uh, strategic plans for various elements of our. Uh, maritime enterprise here that uh, it's been suggested that we combine at least attempt to combine all of these various elements I mean the Coast Guard's got a plan the Navy's got theoretically has a plan the uh, who else was it Sal the EPA uh, you know the, the uh, Department of Homeland Defense the, the uh, you know the Border Patrol I have no idea they have all these strategic plans that involve maritime things a MARAD uh, Maritime Administration, uh, probably MSC as a strategic plan for all I know. Uh, is there is there something to be said for us getting our act together when we're working on this this plan for a future that is unknown but is going to approach us anyway uh, to get all these people together and work out a, a true uh, plan? Because it's so much easier for the Chinese, the way they're organized, to do this stuff. But 
as, as in the kind of structure we have in our government, uh, isn't it, would it not be better to have this total planning agency to help or at least help these, these folks coordinate their, their planning activities? I do. I think it would be a really good idea. It's one of those things, you know, the Navy seems very self-contained, but it just isn't. And it needs to work with the Coast Guard. It needs to work with the Merchant Marine organizations and every other agency that has a finger in the pie of the maritime domain. If you're not working together, then you're all going to be working at cross-purposes. Given the interconnectedness of the maritime domain with trade, with security with the border with all of these different aspects not having a plan that brings all of those together just seems crazy to me and I think it's something that and again I don't know who is going to be able to get all of these agencies to sit down but whoever it is needs to take a long hard look at how to do that I think it would be hugely hugely valuable and democracy is very inconvenient for planning, as you say, but it's very important. And I think it just needs to be done somehow. Get these people in a room, get them to sit down and just try and hammer something out. As with most things, it has to be a priority of leadership. And I think until you see a change in that, either internally or externally by the voters and somebody gets in there that is willing to step forward. I think I think you're right. There there are um, there are the players who you would sit around the table, and I think if you gave them the the task and the expected outcomes, that they would produce something that we all would, would probably nod our heads as a good thing. But unfortunately, there's nobody calling for that meeting to come around the table, and so we're just going to have to uh, have to wait until the, the the tide moves one way or another. Uh, just I wanted to, we were talking about especially early on in the show, the tie-in between the American and the British military-industrial complex and industries and cross-pollinization. And of course, the, the, the great surprise that we're still going to learn more about of the last year or so was the – and I, I can't ever pronounce it correctly, so I, I, you give me the British impersonation, and I'll give you my Southern American uh, – AUKUS, <laughs> the Australia-UK-US <laughs> agreement. AUKUS is like a, a type of pelican. I don't know. Um, but I yeah, saw we, a note. On, office, you know, the, the UK Defense Journal had a little note that uh, had me nodding my head that Australian submariners are now attending the, the Royal Navy's nuclear propulsion training course. And that will be interesting to, to see how that moves along. And as far as from what I've seen um, – the labor part the labor party taken over from the liberal party in australia they're still moving forward with it uh, from the british perspective uh, that interplay and how that technology is going to work out from what i've read so far it looks like a very uh, reasonable balanced approach from from industry that everybody will get a fair bite of it is there um is there any early concerns on that agreement from a, a military-industrial standpoint, or does it look like, as in most things, the submarine and the nuclear power community has it fairly well wired as long as the money and the political support stays behind it? I was actually very pleasantly surprised looking at AUKUS. I was concerned when it first came out that it would go the way of 
of so many of these other programs that have been poorly planned and poorly executed but i i think as you say it it's looking like everybody's working well together and things have been planned out properly um the training aspect i think that's one of the key things we need to think about with allies and partners is making sure that we are sharing our best practice it seems ridiculous to have you know very deep military and defense connections with other nations but that not want to pass on what we do well and take the lessons of what our partners do well and if we can continue doing that in concert with the industrial links with the production links and with the interoperability from these programs i think that just makes us stronger and especially coming up against big adversaries like russia and china we need to do all that we can to make sure that we are all pulling our weight and that we all know how to do things best so i think that's been a really really encouraging sign um and i think the submarine community is is showing us where we should be going yeah one of the one of the other things that uh, you you've talked about in a couple of your articles is the personnel problem because the one of the greatest costs of operating a navy is not the uh, equipment necessarily, but the pain for the people and uh, that are, are, are driving the ships or flying the airplanes or uh, driving the submarines. Um, and you know, there's been a call in the U.S. Navy in experimentation with minimally manned crews and and uh, more automation on the ships. Uh, how much of, uh, you, you know you get caught in the innovation? Uh, spider web when you start doing that uh, because some things you can't do without larger crews uh, what what's your perspective on on the personnel issues is it is that almost a, a game stopper sometimes if we get if it gets too expensive because we can't recruit without paying more money it's just it seems to be such a massive issue i mean both recruitment and retention are becoming increasingly difficult and i think that's common um across the pond as well so obviously the easy solution in invertecomber's easy solution is to have more uncrewed platforms if you don't need the personnel you don't have to recruit them and you don't have to retain them but that does mean you have to create uncrewed vessels that work and that is a lot more difficult than I think a lot of people would like to believe it's something that it's it's just such a new concept it's a new way of operating and it will need new doctrine to be written to fold these vessels into maritime operations and i think it's something that just has to be very very carefully thought through and if we jump feet first into the waters of uncrewed vessels we may just run into so many problems with them not working with them not fitting in with the other vessels and with not being able to be maintained and used for a long time i know that congress has has had some huge reluctance in funding um for large unmanned surface vessels for this exact reason because there isn't a working model in them but also of a concept of operations and without good underpinning we run the risk of having uncrewed vessels that turn out like the LCS they don't work so i think it's very important just to stop the momentum a little bit sit back and just figure out what we want uncrewed vessels to do how we want them to fit do we want them to be automated do we want them to have more of a machine learning style to them where they can make more of their own decisions 
Is the maintenance going to be done by human crew? There's all of these questions that I think just need to be very, very, very carefully looked at because otherwise we're going to be in a position where we need these uncrewed vessels, but they just won't quite work. Well, Emma, that has been a fast and a great hour. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, for the for the listeners out there um, who haven't had the introduction to to Emma yet, where'd be a good place for them to keep an eye on you? And besides working as fast as you can to finish up your PhD, which I know you want to pop out as soon as you can, uh, just curious, you know, what other things are you working on right now? Uh, the best place is Twitter. I'm at Salisbot, S-A-L-I-S-B-O-T. And that's a good place to talk to me, ask me questions, shout at me, tell me I'm wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's also where I post all of my work. So if you're interested in what I'm doing, that's a good source of information. Yeah, I'm just really trying to finish the PhD. Um, I'm doing a bit of work um, in naval spaces on Ukraine and um, trying not to become too distracted from the thesis by all of these other fascinating projects I could be doing. I could appreciate that, too. It's very easy to get distracted. And, again, really appreciate you taking time out of your, your busy visit. And I look forward to the opportunity to talk to you again sometime down the road, Emma. Yeah, thank, so thanks a lot, Emma. Guys. This has been awesome. Well, thank you. It's been great. And thank you very much, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. And until next time, I hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers.